a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery, and it's brought to you by our friends at KnowYourScript.org. KnowYourScript.org is a fountain of information on all things uh, opioids, I guess, uh, for lack of better words, because it is Know Your Script. And they're going to help you talk to your doctor, talk to yourself, talk to loved ones, and find out if there's safer alternatives out there. What it is going to do is it can tell you that opioids are all bad, because they're not. They serve a purpose. But we got to know exactly what they're used for and how to best manage them. And you can find all that by going to knowyourscript.org. I'm Casey Scott, uh, an alcoholic. You know what? I haven't said that for a while. And I just said it. And you know what? When I used to say it, I used to feel shame. And to be honest with you right now, I don't feel shame. I feel pride. Uh, I'm proud of who I am and where I've come from. And uh, that's what this podcast is all about, is opening up a conversation for those uh, dealing with addiction or loved ones in addiction and uh, just to get it out there. Uh, normally, at this point in the podcast or the radio program, we'd have heard from Dr. Matt. Uh, but Dr. Matt is not here today. Uh, I got a text last night that is someone in his household came down with Corona. So he's doing the right thing and he's uh, quarantining and he's checking it all out and so uh, when all it's all said and done Dr. Matt will be back right here in this seat uh, sharing his insight and wisdom uh, on this podcast but that doesn't mean the podcast doesn't happen heck no we keep going so uh, I've got a lovely lady here today uh, she's going to share her story she also works for a recovery program up in Ogden and we're going to find out a little bit more about that towards the end of it but right now let me just introduce you to her her name is Whitney Cordova How are you? I'm good. How are you? Now, uh, Whitney, uh, off air, this is kind of, we, we, you know, we, we talk and, and, and kind of get you to calm down and, and let you know that this is just going to be an easy conversation. And you said, um, I spent 18 months in, uh, treatment. And our producer said, that's the time it takes to get a master's. And I said, well, she did get a master's, a master's in recovery. So before we get into your story, why do you feel like you did 18 months in, uh, treatment? I just feel like that 90 days wasn't enough for me. Um, I was barely starting to change those habits at six months, let alone 90 days. I had a slow start to sobriety and a couple, uh, quite a few relapses. So, Hiccups. Yep. And so I, uh, but I just kept trying and kept going back and stayed there. They didn't kick me out, thank goodness. Well, you know, and, and I think that should be a lesson to everyone uh, in addiction, in recovery. Persistence pays off. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not how many times you get knocked down. It's how many times you get up. Uh, where does the story of Whitney Cordova begin? It begins in Ogden, Utah. Um, I was born March 26, 1990. I am an only child. Um, I Both my parents were around 
Um, I had an amazing childhood. I don't remember. I don't have any memories of anything horrible happening in my childhood. So no real trauma. No real trauma when I was a child. Uh uh-uh. uh. Nope. And um, yeah, I was close with my family. I'm still close with my family. That it wasn't always the case during my active addiction. But you did say something interesting off air. You, you said, because uh, you said your last name was Cordova, and mm-hmm. I said, I know some Cordovas. And you said, yeah, we, we, we've got a large family. Most, you know, uncles and aunts have 10 kids. But right after my dad had me, he got a vasectomy. Yes. Three weeks after he had me, my dad got a vasectomy. It's like he knew. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, grab the seatbelt. We're on. We're... This is going to be a wild ride. <laughs> yeah. So do you remember the first time you tried alcohol or drugs or substances? Yes. I was 12 years old. Whoa. And I mean, that's... I was young. I was young. I was hanging out with some older girls and we... um drank three Mike's hard lemonades and I remember the feeling and I was like I really like this like I could feel like this every day for the rest of my life so you guys shared three Mike's hard lemonades no, we each had three wow at 12 at 12 and I for, threw up oh I'm sure you did <laughs> and for those of you who don't know Mike's hard lemonade um you know this is what we call them in college uh cheerleader beers uh because I mean but <laughs> that's what we call them because they taste delicious. They do. Uh, they taste like lemonade. And, and the whole guise is that, hey, you don't know you're drinking alcohol. Yeah. Because normally uh, you drink alcohol, you, you get that alcohol face. You go, ah, oh, that was burned. And, and that's supposed to be a good thing. But not with this. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's supposed to not taste like alcohol. And it doesn't. And so it was easy for a 12-year-old to drink. Yes. And you said you had three and you remember feeling that this is something you could do every day. Yes. Did that scare you or? No, it excited me. I I remember thinking like, I'm going to, well, my parents always drank. And so I thought, this is why they do, why they do that. I get it now. Um, but it was, I had no idea. I was so naive. I had no idea. Prior to you uh, picking up your first Mike's Hard Lemonade at the age of 12, did your parents ever have a conversation with you about alcohol and drugs? Did you ever ask them why they drank? You know, I I don't remember ever asking them that. I do remember I used to get mad at my mom for drinking if she'd have a glass of wine. My parents are responsible drinkers. Like, they're able to drink and go to work the next day. Yeah. Um, but I remember being mad at my mom Every time she would have a glass of wine when we were like out at dinner and stuff and I'd beg her not to. And I don't know why that was. Was it the prevailing culture? Uh, was it you didn't want your friends to see your mom drinking alcohol? Yeah. Because living in Ogden, and that's where I grew up, it's predominantly LDS. Yeah, it is. Uh, and especially in school. And yep. there was there was, there was was baggage that came along with having your parents being seen drinking at that's a, a restaurant. True. I didn't even think about that, but I'm guessing that was why um, I remember being very embarrassed that they drank and I wouldn't tell my friends. You know, I try and keep it on the down low, so... So 12 years old, you get drunk for the first time and you puke. Yes. Um, and you said you could feel like this every day. Yes. So did you start drinking? I, I mean, it's tough for a 12-year-old to drink regularly. Uh, I drank pretty regularly. It was a, an every weekend thing um, all through junior high. How do, how do you get it? I mean, at, at junior high. 
I had this friend, and he was like six foot four, and he had a fake ID, and you could go to that little mini mart on 36th Street. And, Been there. And yeah, you know what I'm talking the about. The drive up. Yes, it's a drive through, and you can buy, you can get alcohol there, or we'd steal it from our parents. Okay. Yeah, I used. I remember mixing lots of different alcohols. And if you just take a, a little, bottle. they'll never know. Exactly, and putting them all in a water bottle and then miserably drinking it. Oh. Yeah. And so at, at 12 years old, uh, every weekend you're partying with your friends. Yes, but when I say party, I'm talking one or two beers. At this point, you know, it wasn't... It wasn't blackout drunk. No, but I was definitely doing stuff I shouldn't have been doing. (laughs) Yeah, I get that. And so how long do you keep that going for? Um, I kept that going all through high school till I graduated. Um, I, I got good grades in high school. I, I never struggled. You know, I was living two different lives. I was partying and then I was a cheerleader and I had good grades and I had my very LDS friends and I had this whole separate life that um, that I was living. But I don't think that's uncommon no. for a lot of high school students, you know, who who play by the rules during school and then at night they bend them and like, push them as far as they can. <laughs> yeah. But the whole time in high school, while you're cheerleading and doing everything, uh, did you ever have any run-ins with your parents or the cops about your drinking? Yes. Um, I got a couple minor impossessions. Uh, my parents were obviously not happy about that. They confronted me about stealing the alcohol. I denied it. You know, I um, I would just deny, deny, deny. My parents took my car away one time because I drove drunk. And I remember my dad saying, I know you were drunk. And I was like, I, I almost believed myself oh, that yeah. I didn't drink and drive because I was so convinced and telling my parents in telling my parents that. That's crazy how the addict brain can do that. Yes. It can rewrite history. Oh, it yeah. can tell you that's not what happened. This is what happened. And it makes more sense to the addict brain than it goes. Yep. We were in the right. Yep. Why are they coming at me like this? Yeah. And so you, you do that all through high school. You have some, some run-ins with your parents, some run-in with the law. Yep. Um, but do you? Um, what happens when you graduate? When I graduate, I moved down to Salt Lake and I was going to the U. Mm-hmm. Um, things were good. I was drinking heavily. I was in a sorority and mm-hmm. I was uh, cheering and I... I was drinking heavily. I was drinking probably six days a week. I didn't even know what alcohol withdrawals were, and I was having them no, uh, really? when I would stop drinking. So would that be like the shakes or just the, shake, the sweats? Yeah, the shakes, the sweats, um, nausea, vomiting. I didn't. I thought it was just a really bad hangover. But no. and so, so your friends or someone would say, you know what you need? You need a little hair of the dog. Yeah, and I had no idea that that actually worked until someone suggested take a shot. It'll take it away, and I'm like, okay. And so I did. And, and it did. And it worked. And after that worked, I knew from then on, all you got to do is keep drinking. Yeah. That's the vicious cycle that just starts right there. Yes, it because, is. Yeah. And so through college, do you graduate? Do you- I didn't graduate. Um, I got injured pretty bad my sophomore year, hurt my back. and Cheerleading? Yes. And ended up getting prescribed pain pills. Oh. Um, and that's kind of where my addiction really took off. I mean, it was already manifesting itself, but that's when things took a turn for the worst. 
Now, the whole time uh, at this point, it's just alcohol, maybe some marijuana. Yeah, a little bit of marijuana, but that was it. It was just alcohol. I I actually wasn't a big marijuana smoker um, until I was like 21. And so at any point, you know, running in with your parents and the laws under 18 and going to college, did you ever have any friends or loved ones going, hey, Whitney? Slow what? down. Yeah, you, you, you might want to pump the brakes on this. This is this is not normal. Yeah, I definitely, my parents for sure, they they saw the most of it. But um, all my friends did the same things. Right. They were all using and partying just as hard, if not harder. Now, because I had friends who could drink like a gentleman and who could, it seemed to not ruin their lives. Right. And, and I remember sitting there going, how come they can do it and I can't? Mm-hmm. What is wrong with me? What? Why am I broken? Why can they seem to do it? Now I can tell you, looking back with some sobriety under my belt, is they were fighting just as hard as I was. And sometimes you don't see the whole picture. Mm-hmm. But also a lot of them uh, still drink to this day and it hasn't wrecked and ruined their lives. And they can manage to sit down and have two beers at a party and walk away. I just never had that ability. Right. Same here. So you hurt your back. We're going to find out what that looks like, because that's when you said the party really gets turned up. Yes. Uh, you're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. Unfortunately, Dr. Matt Woolley is not here today. Someone in his household uh, tested positive for COVID, so he's doing the right thing in quarantining. But our uh, guest today is Whitney Cordova. She just told us about, uh, it sounds like her first 22 years, uh, and uh, where she just messed around with a little bit of weed and alcohol seemed to be driving shotgun the majority of your life from the age of 12 up until now. Yes. But you got hurt cheerleading. Mm-hmm. And uh, you said you were prescribed. I was prescribed oxycodone. Um, and at this point, have you ever had a pain pill before? So I had had a pain pill when I got hurt cheering in high school. And I remember really liking the feeling. But also when they were gone, they were gone because I didn't know how to get more. And I kind of just left it at that. Okay. Um, but where I hurt my back, I was prescribed them continuously over a long period of time. Uh-huh. Um, and so I just, I I didn't even realize, I didn't know what withdrawals even were until one day I was like, I think I want to stop taking these pills. They're making me feel weird and I'm sleeping all the time. Um, and I quit taking them and I got deathly ill. Now, the, w- w- when you're doing uh, your pain pills... Are you still drinking heavily at this point, or you did you did that kind of take over for that? Um, the pain pills took over. I was I was maybe drinking like once a month, 
Um, but I wasn't drinking heavily anymore. I just drink a couple glasses of wine and I'd take my pain pills with the wine and which is bad, which is bad, but it made me feel good. So that's what I did. And so you decided, uh, you're sleeping a lot and, uh, making you feel funny. So you decided to stop. And then you said you've, you've had your first taste of what, uh, withdrawals were. Yes. And you said it was, you felt deathly ill. I felt deathly ill. For those who don't know and maybe listening for the first time, uh, we've had a lot of people on the podcast who said when withdrawing from opioids, they would welcome death because they feared withdrawals. Yes. They say, and I've never been that, so I, I can't speak from experience. So I want you to talk a little bit about that. What does the body go through uh, during the withdrawal process? Um, so for me, the first thing was I would start vomiting. Um, restless legs, that was the worst part of it. And that's just a twitching leg all the time. Twitching leg all the time, and it's for days and days, not being able to sleep, hot and cold, um, headache, you name it. it <laughs> I mean, it sounds miserable. It, it was miserable, and and I didn't know. I had a friend tell me, well, just take another pain pill, and it'll go away. Which is the equivalent of the hair of the dog for alcohol. yes. And as soon as I figured out that that took those withdrawals away, I was off and running. So at that point, you thought it's easier to go with it than against it. Yes. And when you say you're off and running, what does that mean? That means I went from my prescription pills to buying pills off the street to doing heroin. Um, Wow, that escalated quick. Pretty quick. It did escalate quick. So did your doctors finally uh, stop prescribing them? Yes. And what, what, what was the reason for that? Um, just it, I, was, I wasn't in pain anymore, didn't need it. And that, and were you really not in pain anymore? I really wasn't. Oh. I just liked the pills. I hadn't been in pain for a while. Oh. Yeah. And so you started buying them off the street. I started buying them off the street, started hanging out with... Um, Unsavories? Yes, some sketchy people. Now, I'm going to stop you right there because uh, some of those who were following us on the YouTube channel, you can see Whitney Cordova. She's an absolutely beautiful young lady, uh, cheerleader up at the University of Utah, and uh, all of a sudden hanging out with some unsavory people. I, I can't um, – that's got to be a bit scary for you. Yes, it was. I, I was naive to that world, so I got taken advantage of sometimes. But I also learned how to play the game pretty quick uh-huh. and realized – being a girl, I could get what I wanted pretty easily. So you start buying pills on the street, and like so many before you on this podcast, uh, the pills are really expensive they are and expensive. become harder to get. Yep, and yeah, so that's what moves people over to heroin. Yep, I was really desperate one day. I was withdrawing. Um, the girl that I was with couldn't get pills for another 48 hours. Which is an eternity. Which is forever. And she said, I have this and it'll help. And it was heroin. And sure enough, it helped and did more. And so. Okay, I want to stop you because uh, it's interesting. Um, you know, we had your good friend Jim in here. Yes. And he said at one point he crossed every line that he put down for himself. Yes. Did you ever in your mind and when you were drinking and doing your pain pills say to yourself, I'll never do heroin? Oh, absolutely. Heroin is one thing that I won't do. That seems to be the hard line for a lot of people. I I said I wouldn't even do cocaine. Like I, I 
was not a drug person when I was younger. Like that stuff seemed a whole different world to me and somewhere I would never go. You can't imagine being in that world. No. But here you find yourself in this world. Yes. So a friend, I guess you could say that. Acquaintance. S- acquaintance. Yes. <laughs> uh, said she couldn't get pills for 48 hours, but yes. she had some heroin. Yes. And at this point, I had been shooting the pills up, so I was using them IV. Uh-huh. Um, and so doing heroin that way wasn't that much different for me. So you'd so ar- I'd already crossed that line the with a needle. Line. Yeah. And so I was already doing that. And so putting something else in the needle wasn't that big of a deal. But the crossing the line of using a needle was really scary for me. Okay. So let's go back to that because – you know, it, it's funny. You say naive, and when I'm out and about and I talk to people about addiction, uh, a lot of people are naive when it comes to that. Very. And they go, well, heroin's the only drug you shoot. And I go, no. I mean, the reality is, is there's three or four ways to get drugs in your body. Yes. You can consume them. You can shoot them. You can sniff them. And you can smoke them. Yep. And you can pretty much do that to any drugs out there. Yes. And so why, what made you go from ingesting the pills to shooting the pills? Um, I, I think just being around people that were doing it that way and curiosity. Um, I, is it a different high? It is a different high. It's more intense and it hits you immediately. When I was snorting the pills, I had to wait like 20 minutes for it to kick in. Uh huh. And, you know, addicts are impulsive. I didn't want to wait 20 minutes. <laughs> I yeah. wanted it now. <laughs> and so I think that's why most people end up with the syringe. Yes. Because it's instantaneous. Yes. Once it gets in that bloodstream. Yep. And it saves, it saves drugs too. You're not using as much. Oh, I never heard that. Yeah. Well, at least I wasn't. Okay. Well, no, I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. Because a lot of times when you have, you know, pain pills or whatever, there's a coating on them. Yep. Uh, that's supposed to be for the time release. Yes. Right. And you so can the, suck that coating off of it. And people do that. Yes. There's this great documentary, or it's not a documentary, but it's a show on Hulu. Have you heard of this? It's called Dope Sick. Yeah, I watched it. It was really good. Insane. Yeah, it was insane to and watch their lives spiral like yeah. that. And, and but it's it's a story we hear so often here on the yes. podcast. So you make the jump from pain pills to heroin. Yes. And at that point, what is your family and friends saying about your lifestyle? Um, you know, they didn't know at first. They didn't know what I was going through. Um, I opened up to my mom and basically said, I'm good. I don't need help, but I have been doing this and told her what I had been doing. Telling her that you've been injecting? I didn't tell her that's how I was doing it. I just told her I was doing opiates. I didn't even say heroin. I said opiates. But to be Dr. Matt for a second, the reason you said you weren't injecting uh, probably to your mom is because that makes it a lot worse. It does. You were downplaying it quite a bit. I was downplaying it. And that's what addicts do. Yeah. And they they didn't know what was going on for the first little bit. Um, My friends, I had isolated myself. I only hung out with people that did drugs at this point. Um, which is crazy because I have a lot of friends I've been friends with since I was four and five that I was keeping in touch with that I just pushed to the side. And then I was in a very abusive relationship, and I think that that fueled my addiction as well. So you're, you're, you're just in a perfect storm. Yes. And not knowing how to get out. Yes. And so when you tell your mom you know, that you're doing opioids, but you don't need help, and you're going to figure this out, Yeah. she gives you the room to do that? 
Um, I mean, she was she was on my case about it, but I would lie to her. She'd say, did you use today? And I'm like, no. And she'd be like, do you feel like using? And I'm like, no, when I'm sitting there high. And she offered to get me help. Like she – my parents offered, but I didn't think I needed help at that point. Master manipulator. Which is kind of crazy because I was putting a needle in my arm and to think that I didn't need help is very – ridiculous well that's the attic brain for you (laughs) you know what i mean it it, it, it's telling that you're okay you know and you start to believe it Mm -hmm. so you know normally on the podcast we we find out about someone's rock bottom and we're going to find out about your rock bottom coming up right after this on project recovery Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. Dr. Matt Woolley is not in today. Uh, he's got someone in his house that's sick with COVID, so he is quarantining and should be back next week. But our guest today is Whitney Cordova. Uh, she's talked about uh, her life thus far, uh, starting with alcohol at the age of 12, uh, moving into opioids after a back accident in cheerleading in uh, college, and now she's currently shooting up her veins with heroin and talking to her parents, but we're going to find out about her rock bottom. Do you remember the incidences before? Yeah, I do remember. Um, So I was, like I said, I was in an abusive relationship and things had gotten really bad. Uh, He was, you know, choking me, punching me, kicking me, all these things. And it's happening, you know, mm, Every other day, it's happening very frequently, and um, now there's no good reason. No, for for that. No, but what were the reasons why? I was doing drugs, oh. and he was frustrated with that. Mm-hmm. So it, I definitely had a part in it too. I would fuel the fire when he was upset because it made me so mad that I couldn't really fight back, and so I would say things that would set him off even more. But then no excuse for anyone no to lay excuse. hands on anybody. No. But I just wondered what it was. I mean, I didn't know if it was over drugs, but was was he was he a, a user? Uh not at the time. No. He wasn't. He was um he was going to work doing what he was supposed to be doing and we had just had my son um who is 6 now and so I was in this abusive relationship. I had just gotten charges um in idaho and a bunch of felonies and um i start smoking crack too whoa that's a new one yeah to add on top of it so i'm doing heroin i'm smoking crack and i'm hanging out with these people and um i went to pick up crack one day and i was already at a low and uh i i had a bad feeling about it because i felt like it was really sketchy But I went anyway, and basically the guys held a gun to my head and kept me there for like 48 hours and raped and beat me up. And then then they let me go. And that was my rock bottom, I think. No, that – I am so – wow. And they just let you go. And they let me go. Um, and I never saw him again. Yeah. And I was too scared to go to the police. I was doing drugs. I was buying drugs from them. I wasn't going to go tell the cops that, Hey, I went to go pick up crack and this is what happened, you know? 
and they were scary guys. I knew I knew it wasn't a good situation walking into it. But the addict brain. But that didn't stop me. I I pushed that thought back in my head and I was like, okay, but you need this. So if you can't tell the cops, who can you tell? I didn't tell a soul. Um, I didn't tell anybody until I got into treatment that this had happened. So you've been carrying this for how many so years? So I was carrying it for probably about six years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, um, it was a lot to – I just – I felt like it was my fault because I walked into that situation knowing – You know it wasn't. Yeah. I know now that it wasn't and there's no excuse for anybody to do that to another human. But um, at the t- at the time without processing it and talking about it, I thought it was my fault. Wow. But you said you walked around that for six years. Yes. So what happened between that and the six years? Did you just try to manage it yourself? Did you? I just kept using. I kept getting high. Um, and then I got some other charges. And when I finally got those other charges, I was forced to do treatment. And so they, they said, hey, you've got a choice here. Yep. And you that can, was. You can either go to treatment or you can go to jail or prison. Yep. And that was about three and a half years ago, four years ago. Yeah, they. It was either eighteen months in prison or uh, get treatment and get help and stay on the course of probation. So, like, I think you present that to anybody. Hey, you can go to prison or you can go to treatment. Yeah, most people are going to say treatment just just for the fact that it's not prison. Mm-hmm. In your head at the time, where you're like, well, maybe this would be a time for me to turn my life around, or were you just going because it wasn't prison? I was just going because it wasn't prison. I had no no desire to stop using at this point. You know, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of times people say, well, if they don't go to treatment for themselves, it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And I think there, there's some truth to that. There is. But there's – look at you. You were yeah. forced to go to treatment and you found treatment. How I like to put it is external – External things got me there. Internal things made me stay. So, I mean, I I, under, I understand the concept of, of of presenting somebody with that option. Yes. You know, you know what I mean. And they might not be willing to go, uh, but they might get something out. They of might it. change their mind. They might get something out of it, or they might hear something that sticks with them that maybe will help them later down the road. Is how I look at it. So, do you remember when your mind shift changed in uh, treatment, where you went? I hey, do. You know what? Maybe there's something to this sobriety. I do. Um, I was about 90 days clean and I was still struggling. Um, I had a boyfriend that actually passed away in my house. I found him overdosed. After seeing him overdosed like that, something switched in my mind and I was like, I can't do this anymore. Like, I'm not going to put my family through that pain that I just went through witnessing him die. Because, I mean... No pun or maybe pun intended. That's a sobering thought. It is a sobering just, thought. Just seeing a loved one, someone you're with, someone that could be you, yep. pass away right in front of you because of the same stuff that you've been doing. Yep, exactly. And so at that point, you go, I'm not going to put my family through this. Yep. At that point, I was like, I'm going to do whatever they tell me to do in treatment. I'm going to listen. I'm going to take suggestions. And I'm just going to focus on me and getting better. And that's what I did. So what modalities, so where did you go to treatment center? I went to treatment at Action Recovery Group. Up in Ogden. Up in South Ogden, yep. And so what did that program look like? 
Um, so we would go in, we'd do group therapy, we'd do MCBT, Mindful Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Um, we would do family therapy, which my family attended. It was really good for my family. Um, we, which is it is that's that I mean that's so important. Uh, so important. Th- the family gets an education too. I wouldn't uh, let my mom come for the first six months. Why? Because I didn't want her to hear all the stuff I had done, and I had opened up to these people, and I didn't want her to know. Which is crazy because my mom's the most understanding, least judgmental person there is. But a I mother's love is unconditional. Yep, it is. And so. You did that, and as we talked about in the first of it, you did that for 18 months. 18 months. 19, actually. Now, was you say that was your choice. That was my choice. At some point, Action said, you know what? You're probably good. Yeah. And you went, I don't think so. Yeah, they did. Um, Once you get up, it's a 12-step program, so once you get and do your step five, you, you transition and go to aftercare, which is once a week. I was nervous about going to aftercare and only being there once a week. So I got on a tapered schedule and I was going three days a week for probably like seven months. And that was the best thing for me. I didn't have a job at the time. I wasn't, I was solely focused on recovery and I'm so grateful I got to do that. And and a lot of people don't get that opportunity. Um, You know, on the podcast, we often say that the opposite of addiction is an abstinence. The opposite of addiction is connection. Yes. And it found, sounds like you found your connection at Action Recovery. I did. Um, the group members I had, still, they're like family to me. The staff there, they were like family to me. Um, it was just crazy, these connections that I had with, especially with people that I didn't think I, I never thought I'd be friends with a middle-aged alcoholic man, but you know, (laughs) he's one of my best friends. Like, so it's just funny. You meet all kinds of different people that you maybe wouldn't necessarily be friends with in the outside world and they become like your family. Now you gotta, you gotta hear me out on this because the irony is those were your friends when you first started using Yes. You know what I mean? A lot of the people you never thought you'd hang out with, never associate with, here you are in a room shooting up drugs with, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And, and looking in the mirror going, I would never associate with these people. Ever. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. Th- th- these are the people my parents warned me about. These are the people you see on TV that I'm supposed to stay away from. And now they're my acquaintances. Yeah. These, these people are doing, they're not being good people and I'm surrounding myself with them. And now you're friends with the same people who have found recovery, yes. who have found sobriety. Yes. So that makes me think that people are good. Deep down, I think they're good. I think that there's, I think. The people that you're in those rooms with in the beginning were lost souls. Yes. Trying to people. figure it out. And and, and you are one of them. Yep. And it's so delusional how our brain will tell us we're not like these people. They, what are we doing here? This is not us. That terminal uniqueness that we think we have. And now your best friend's a 60-year-old recovering alcoholic. Exactly. Crazy, right? <laughs> it is crazy. But beautiful. Yeah, it is beautiful. And and these relationships that I have today are so much better than any relationships I had prior to my addiction. Um, I, I can count on these guys for anything, and they'll be there. You know why, you, you know why I think that friendship works? Because it's authentic. It is. They know you for you and they all you've been all through. They know all the deep, dark stuff, and they still love me. And Because secrets keep us sick. They do. So eventually you had to tell your mom about the horrible things that yep. happened to you. Yep, I did tell her. Um 
she, of course, cried. She was very upset. She was so upset that I hadn't come to her. She was like, why didn't you come to me for support? And I was I told her I was scared. I didn't want I didn't want you to be upset like this. And that was mainly the reason. And 100 percent true. Yeah. And she had every right to be upset. I would be upset hearing that about my children, too. And you your truth was your truth, too. You didn't yep. want to upset her. You didn't yep. want to let her down. You, you know what I mean? And so that's what this is so maddening about this disease and addiction is that there's so many different angles and everybody's just trying to do the best they can. Yep. And it sounds like you're doing wonderful. So now how many years of sobriety do you have under your belt? Um, I have three years and two months. Congratulations. Thank you. So how does life look like for you today? Life for me today is amazing. Um, I have a boyfriend that I have a daughter with. My daughter is almost five months. I have a six-year-old son. Um, we just bought a new house, and uh, I work at Action Recovery Group, and I my life is amazing. I'm so grateful for where I'm at today. I never thought I'd be here. And, and you know, and I've said that before, this on before on the podcast. Um when I was in my darkest moments and I thought about getting sober, I thought sobriety was going to be blah. Mm-hmm. I thought my life's not going to be fun. I'm going to have to get a nine to five job. Just do the work. Boring. It's going to be boring. Yeah. But to my surprise, life is beautiful. Life is amazing. There's wonderful things happening every day all around. It's so much better. It, it is. And it's because that authentic relationships that I have with my kids, my girlfriend, my parents, my ex-wife, all of these, you know, and yep. sobriety has given me that. And I'm so thankful for it. And I'm thankful that you found Action Recovery. So real quick, I just want to have a little insight of what Action Recovery is. Okay. Tell me a little bit about it. So we are um, an outpatient treatment center. For those who don't know, an outpatient <coughs> treatment center is a treatment center that you stay at your house, you have your job, and you're able to come there how many days a week? Five days a week. And, and that's a good way to, to, to be able to maintain your life because I think that's a lot of hesitation for those who get into recovery. It's like, I don't have 45 days where I can go somewhere. Right. I don't have 90 days. I don't have 18 months. I've, I've still got to make a mortgage. I got to make a car payment. I got to go to my job. I got to do all these things. And I think that's why outpatient, our treatment program does work so well because when you're in inpatient and you get out of inpatient, you're thrown back possibly to that same toxic situation. Right. Um, but with outpatient, you're adjusting your life as you go and you have that daily support mm-hmm. and you're still partially out in the real world, but you also have that safe place to go every day. I also think that it's a great program because when real life hits you with real problems, you have somebody to go back and process it with. Exactly. You know what I mean? Because if you do the 45 days and you go out there and the real world kicks you in the junk like it's going to do, uh, you don't have anywhere to turn. Exactly. And so you're kind of left to your own device. Yep. And so this way you can go back and you've got a therapist, you've got a, a, a group, you've got some friends that you can talk with. Yep, exactly. And so you got the outpatient program, which is five days a week. Yes. And uh, then we have our day treatment program, which is also five days a week. Now, tell me about a day treatment because I've, I've heard about it and, and I know a little bit about it, but I don't understand Exactly what it is. What the difference is. Yeah. It's basically the same thing, just more. So they get more group therapy time. Mm-hmm. Um, they they do two hours of group therapy as opposed to one hour of group therapy. So it's just extra counseling. And that's normally from one to five? One to five, yep. And then our night treatment's from 530 to 830. 
Now, I, I feel bad asking about this, but a lot of people who are listening might want to know, Is it does insurance cover outpatient yes. and inpatient and, yep. and, and that kind of stuff? Yep. It, we take most insurances. We take Medicaid. Um, but yeah, the insurances, they cover they they cover everything. Wow. Well, it sounds like it's a wonderful place. If people want more information about Action Recovery and the help and support you can give them, where do they find it? Um, they can find it on our website at actiontreatment.com or they can just call um, the office line and the phones are always forwarded to my phones. So even if you call at 2 a.m., I'm going to answer. Whitney's going to pick up the phone. <laughs> I will pick up the phone. So. Because somebody picked up the phone for you. Exactly. And that's the that's the kind of credo that we live by. Yep. Uh, I'm amazed by you. Thank I think you. you are a wonderful, beautiful talented, smart, fun, just great person. And I Thank think you. to think all the things you've endured and to give back and come and tell your story and share, I think it's going to be a blessing and helpful to so many out there listening. Thank so you. Uh, you should be proud of yourself. And I know because I'm a parent and you're a parent too. Your parents are proud of you. Yeah. You're a warrior and you're wonderful. So thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And I want to say thanks to everybody who stopped by and listened to the podcast today. Uh, Project Recovery is brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. And in case you forgot, Project Recovery, it's a KSL podcast. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts.